You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. So I'd like for you to turn there to verse 7. We'll start reading there. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've talked about five other churches in the book of Revelation already. We talked about Ephesus and the reminder that we have to love. They were a church that was very busy, very active, but they had lost the proper motivation. We talked about the church at Smyrna, who was a church that was faithful, but was being persecuted, and greater persecution was to come. But outside appearances would say that church was not doing well, and yet we see that behind the scenes, the bigger, bigger picture spiritually is that this is exactly where this church needed to be, and God commends them, Christ commends them, and has no rebuke for that church. Pergamum was a church that was kind of mired in sin, and they were told to cut it out, or else Jesus was going to show up and bring discipline upon that church. Thyatira was a church that um, had experienced some growth, but it also compromised with culture, similar to what Sardis had done, a church that had kind of fallen asleep in its cultural compromise, and they were challenged to wake up. And so we saw uh, different aspects of those churches, and we've highlighted good things, bad things, and things that we can learn from where those churches were at. And Philadelphia will be no different as we jump into this uh, church this morning. Philadelphia is a church that uh, was being very faithful, and as we're going to see, their faithfulness was leading to opportunity, greater opportunity within their church. Our summary sentence for this morning, and again, um, I didn't get a chance to make kid, kids' notes uh, either this morning, but I've tried to keep it as simple as possible for all of us. Jesus identifies churches that are faithful to him and his word and seeks to give them greater opportunity for influence in order to grow his kingdom. Jesus identifies churches that are faithful to him and his word and seeks to give them greater opportunity for influence in order to grow his kingdom. So as, as Jesus is assessing this church at Philadelphia, he believes that they are a church who has been faithful with some of the little things that they've been given. He highlights the fact that they are a church of little power, which we'll talk in a minute what that probably means. But basically they weren't this mega church that was having a, a huge influence yet within that community, but they were a church that had been faithful to the little things that had been given to them, right? They had been a church that, that had been faithful to the word, had not denied the name of Christ, and Jesus commends them for that. He recognizes that. He knows their works. He sees that. He identifies it. 
and then begins to portray to them that greater opportunity is to come for them, that he wants to open a door for them, that he's the one who has the authority to open and close doors, and his desire is to open a greater door of influence for them in order to grow his kingdom. By way of introduction, um, the city at Philadelphia, kind of similar maybe to to how Sonoy is viewed in some aspects, it was a a city that was kind of viewed as a gateway to other cities. Um, It was a city that stood in a specific place and had a specific purpose, and it was a a city that people passed through oftentimes to get to other cities, which isn't all that different from the way Sonoy is, as, as we're aligned so close to Fayetteville, Peachtree City, and Noonan. Um, it's easy for one to live in Sonoy and to easily identify with some of the other cities surrounding us. And Philadelphia was a similar type city. It was, um, it was also a city that was set up in such a way that it was meant to push the culture of that time upon the surrounding cities. It was a teaching outpost, basically, for the Greek culture. And so they were there to serve as kind of a missionary outpost, not for the gospel, but for the culture of that time. And they were meant to be a light or a teaching point for the other cities surrounding them. It was also an area that was known for earthquakes. Um, They had experienced a very serious earthquake in uh, AD 17. Um, And there had been other earthquakes and aftershocks surrounding that earthquake that was constantly causing the people to exit the city and have to come back to the city. Now, the reason I share that with you is because sometimes we can get bogged down in some of the details of these letters trying to figure out, well, what does that even mean? And some of the things that are stated in these letters to these churches is for a specific context of that church that would have had meaning for that church. So if this is a church that has gone through earthquakes and instability and has had to exit the city multiple times because of safety issues, you can see why Jesus would then talk about a new city that's to come where they will be pillars in that temple where they don't have to go out anymore. I mean, that resonates with a church that is constantly having to vacate the premises because of earthquakes that were surrounding that city. If Jesus were writing the letter to our church, one of the challenges that our church has faced within, within our history is... Um, spatial issues for our kids' ministry. So perhaps Jesus would write and offer promises that in the future a, a place would exist where, where we would not have uh, limits with our rooms for the space of people that Christ has given to us, right? So something that would resonate with us that maybe wouldn't resonate with that church, but it makes sense for that church for Jesus to talk in such a way about pillars in, in, in regards to a new name as well. They experienced a new name for a period of time, because Tiberius, who was a um, leader there in the empire, he helped rebuild the city after the massive earthquake, and they renamed the city after him for a period of time. So this city is very conscious about new names. It's very conscious about the need for stability, pillars that don't, don't fall over in uh, natural disasters. And so Jesus writes in such a context that makes sense for this church. Um, it's very similar to the Smyrna church, Um, in that it was opposed by non-Christian Jews and it receives no rebuke from Jesus, only commendation. Um, And then there's also the discussion that's right off the bat, a point of emphasis that Jesus possesses certain keys. And keys, as we've talked about, demonstrate authority. We know that Jesus possesses the keys to death in Hades, meaning that he has all power and all control and all authority over the afterlife. But here Jesus demonstrates that he has the keys to the city of David or the keys of David. He possesses the keys of the kingdom. 
is what's being described here. So not only does Jesus possess all authority over the afterlife, he possesses all authority to those that enter the kingdom. And we're going to see that entrance into the kingdom was a point of debate and discussion within this church because the Jews who were a part of the synagogues weren't pro-Gentile and had very specific or very specific standards for what a Gentile had to meet in order to even be given entrance into the Jewish community, right? They were seemingly claiming to have the keys to the kingdom. And Jesus informs this church, hey, you've been in uh, opposition with the Jews, the non-Christian Jews that are opposing you. Just so you understand, they don't have the keys to the kingdom, I do. And he, and he reminds them of that authority and that power that he possesses over them. It's also a power and authority that Jesus extends to the church. In Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 19, in the context of um, church discipline, Jesus talks about the church uh, being given the keys to the kingdom um, to, to basically be an example here on earth of what it will look like in the afterlife, those that are a part of the kingdom and those that are not. In Matthew chapter um, 16, verse 19, uh, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Um, So Jesus talks about the keys being extended to the church as well and them having authority um, that he gives to them. All right, so that's just kind of a way of introduction for us to better understand this church and kind of the context of where this church was at. All right, I want us to work through the text uh, real quick this morning because um, I've got some things that I want to uh, share with you at the end um, of our time together today as well. So Let's jump right into the text this morning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Our first point this morning is that a faithful church follows a sovereign king. A faithful church follows a sovereign king. Philadelphia is known as a faithful church. And one of the reasons that they're faithful is because they recognize the sovereign king that they've been called to follow, all right? And Jesus is described in a couple of ways here. First of all, he's described as possessing the highest character, all right? It says that he is the holy one, the true one. And I think this stands in direct comparison to the Jews who are identified as liars later in the text. Jesus is the true one, the holy one, whereas the Jews are liars, This is a character trait that is reserved for God and it's revealed specifically to apply to God in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the martyrs that are crying out to God for vengeance upon their lives that were taken. Holy one, true one applied to God. Again, this is just another way of us seeing the deity of Jesus, which would have been in dispute at that time, continues to be in dispute today. Is Jesus God? And the answer from the text is absolutely, assuredly, yes. He is the holy one. He is the true one. It's also a messianic title, one that's used in Mark chapter 1, verse 24 by the demons, recognizing Jesus as the holy one of God. They, they identify him in that manner. Also in John chapter 6, 
Peter identifies him in such a way that he's the longed for Holy One of God. In John chapter 6, verse 69, we'll start in verse 66. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So go away as well. Uh, or so Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Acts 3.14 is another passage that identifies Jesus in these terms. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. So Jesus is revealing himself to the church at Philadelphia as God. It says in uh, verse 14, Uh, Peter is preaching and he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So Jesus identifies himself, not just as any king, but as a deity type king, as God in flesh. He possesses the highest character as the holy and true one. But secondly, Jesus possesses the highest authority. He possesses the highest authority. We know from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 that Jesus talks about all authority being given to him. He's reminding this church at Philadelphia of that truth. Um, A church with little power is following the one with all of the power, right? That's an important note there that Jesus identifies this church as a church that has very little power. And he is reinforcing to them that that's okay because he has all the power needed to accomplish anything that he wants this church to accomplish, He says, I have all the power. I have the key of David. I possess all power and all authority. Back in our text in Revelation chapter 3, talking about this this key, um, we won't take time to to read it, um, but this reference is is actually quoting from uh, an Old Testament passage. It says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. If you want to look at this on your own time, I would encourage you to do so. But this this is being pulled from the context of Isaiah chapter 22. So you want to jot that passage down and take some time to look at it maybe this week. Isaiah chapter 22 is where Jesus is pulling this information or pulling the context of what he's claiming here. And in Isaiah chapter 22, it's a passage where God is talking about raising up an individual uh, to lead Israel who will possess this type of power because God is giving it to them or giving it to this individual. Um, It's an unchallenged type of authority. It's the highest power in the kingdom, Um, the ability to open and close, and no one else has the authority to open and close what has been opened and closed by that individual. So it's being pulled from that context in Isaiah 22. I mean, there's even the, the idea of uh, the pillar and being set into a position of stability that comes from that chapter as well. What's crazy or what's neat to see is that the, the person who's being identified there, Eli, uh, Eliakim, who was going to be this type of leader, who was going to be given this type of authority, at the end of the chapter, it talks about him being insufficient in his ability to use that power. It talks about him falling even himself. And so Jesus is obviously the greater version of this leader, greater version of this individual. Jesus holds this type of authority, this type of key to the greatest possible extent. Like he, he does it in the right way, all right? So it comes from that context. Um, if you're curious as to what the key of David is even referencing, it was the highest power in God's kingdom and God gives it to Christ. 
Jesus controls the entrance to his kingdom, not the Jews who had been denouncing the church as part of God's people. That was that point of contention. We've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, how the Jews were opposing the church because the Jews had been grandfathered into the Roman Empire. They were excused from having to worship the emperor. They were trying to push the church out from underneath their umbrella so that the church would be persecuted and the Jews would be able to continue to function the way that they had been functioning. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus addresses the Jews of his time for being guilty of claiming to hold the keys to the kingdom. In Matthew 23, 13, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These were the worst type of missionaries. They were meant to be a light, meant to draw the Gentiles to Christ, and not only were they not doing that, they were doing such a poor job of communicating the gospel that they were making situations worse. They were applying so much pressure on the Gentiles to do, do, and do more things in order to earn God's favor. And and that was obviously falling short of God's standards of holiness. And so they were making the situation worse. And Jesus addresses them and talks about them closing things that they should not be closing and not entering things that they themselves should be entering. This was probably happening right here in this church. This synagogue of Satan, these oppressors of the church, Jesus calls them out and he reminds the church, they do not control who is and who isn't a part of my people. He says, I have that key. I'm the one that makes those determinations. So a faithful church follows a sovereign king. A king by that term sovereign, meaning he has all the power. He has all authority. All right, number two, a faithful church obeys the written word. A faithful church obeys the written word. Jesus says, uh, I know your works, as he often does to the different churches that he writes to. Um, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are the two aspects there of what this church has done from a work standpoint. Um, They have obeyed the written word. They have obeyed Jesus. They have not denied his name. This church was uh, a church of little power. Jesus describes them as a church with little power. Um, It was a church that was faithful despite being small in number, small in wealth, small in impact. It was small in man's eyes, but it had huge ramifications or huge impact in God's eyes. Probably a small church off the radar from some of the other churches that we've talked about. Maybe not a church of huge influence in the community. Maybe not a church that was booming in numbers, but a church that God identifies as being a faithful church, despite having little power. They weren't the biggest church. They weren't the wealthiest church. They weren't having the biggest impact. But the weakness of this church did not prohibit it from doing the basic works of the church, which was to read, study, and respond to God's message 
and to hold true to Jesus Christ in the face of opposition. They were not denying the Messiah. And the Jews obviously were the ones that were oppressing them because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so he would have been the one, or they would have been the ones calling for a denial of Jesus. And in the face of that opposition, Jesus commends this church for keeping the word and not denying his name. So they had little power, but number two, they had kept Christ's word. They had kept Christ's word. And then number three, they had not denied Christ's name. These are the positive aspects of this church at Philadelphia. He says, the holy one, the true one, who, who controls the kingdom, the one who has the power to open and shut things, that individual, that Jesus knows your works. And he wants to commend this church for even though they're of little power, not denying his name and keeping his word. And because they've done that, because their works have been such and have revealed them as a church that obeys the word and and follows Jesus and, and puts faith and trust in Jesus and doesn't deny his name, doesn't worship the emperor, doesn't deny him as the Messiah as the synagogues would have called them to do, Jesus commends them for their faithfulness and wants to increase their opportunity of influence. He wants to increase their opportunity for influence as a result of their faithfulness. This church will continue, Jesus says. This church that has little power will not be closed. Its effective presence will continue in the community. Jesus says, I have the authority to open doors. What I open, no man can shut. What I shut, no man can open. And he goes on to say, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, there's a lot of conversation and confusion amongst commentators as to what this door is. Is it talking about Jesus who identifies himself as a door oftentimes? Is it um, the door to the kingdom? Is there the open uh, door to, uh, to, to gospel response that's being talked about here? Is it opportunities for missionary efforts that's being discussed? Um, For me, I think it's helpful for us to look at how this word would be used in other areas of the New Testament. Um, What's clear is that Jesus opens doors, and the other references to doors being opened in the New Testament are all focused on new gospel opportunities, all right? Every other time this, this phrase is used in the New Testament, it's in reference to new gospel opportunities. And that usually includes new opportunities for ministry to take place. And then it also includes willing ears and willing hearts to hear and respond to that message. Let me share a couple of these passages with you that reference open doors in regards to increased opportunities for ministry. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27. Acts chapter 14, verse 27. This is talking about Paul and Barnabas uh, on one of their missionary journeys. It says, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Okay, missionary opportunity. As they're going forth, they begin to describe the open door that God had given them to reach Gentiles with the gospel. Right? That's Acts 14, 27. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 
Let me start in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 16, 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. Talking about Paul, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay, so wide door of gospel opportunity has been opened for Paul in Ephesus. All right. Second Corinthians two twelve. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse twelve. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay, so Paul talks about an open door that was available to him, an open door of gospel ministry, but his spirit wasn't at rest. There was something that just didn't feel right about this situation. He identifies it as the absence of this guy. And so he moves on, even though there's a door of opportunity for ministry available there. Okay, Colossians chapter four, verse three is the last one that we'll read. Again, all of these talking about open doors, and they're all in relationship to gospel opportunities. Start in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, why? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so Paul asking the church to pray for open doors of gospel ministry. Okay, so because this is used so frequently in the New Testament, I think that um, in this passage here, Jesus is talking to Philadelphia about the possibilities of greater opportunities for mission work, okay? The greater opportunities with the gospel. And it's not just because the word is used this way in other areas in the New Testament. I think the second reason that it, that it points to um, it being greater opportunities for missionary type effort is because secondly, there's an idea here of them being uh, victorious over their accusers that Jesus highlights, he ties it in. So going back to our text in Revelation chapter three, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Why, why did he do that? Well, because of their faithful works. I know that you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. So I've opened this door. Then it's, all, it's almost as though he picks up that thought again in verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. You say, well, why, why does that sound like missionary work? Why does that sound like gospel evangelism there? Well, first of all, these people are Jews by blood, okay? But they're not Jews in the context of God's people, right? The New Testament goes to great lengths to talk about the fact that you're not a Jew um, simply because you're one outwardly, that you have to be one inwardly, that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you're part of God's people, that people can be grafted into that, that it's a spiritual descendancy that's, being, um, that's really concerned uh, when we talk about God's people. Okay, so Jesus says, I'm gonna make these people who claim to be Jews, but they're not really Jews in the spiritual context, I'm going to make them do something. I'm gonna make them do something. And here's, and, I, and again, we're probably not gonna take the time to read all the, the Old Testament passages that I would like to this morning. But he says, I will make those of this synagogue of Satan, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. 
what I'm going to show you is that gospel conversions were coming from those who were rejecting the truth and opposing the church at this time. Their faithful, uncompromising witness is about to return fruit because these, Jer- these Jews are going to convert because of this witness. What's happening here is a reversal of how a previous prophecy was understood. Now, I'm going to give you the passages. I'd love for you to sit down and read them on your own this week. Isaiah 45, 14, and then the surrounding verses around that. Isaiah 45, 14, Isaiah 49, 23, and Isaiah 60, 14. Isaiah 45, 14, 49, 23, and 60, verse 14. In all three of these passages, there was a prophecy that God's people at that time known as the Jewish nation, that their salvation by God would cause Gentiles to come and to bow before the Jews and to recognize their God as the one true God and give worship to him. That was the anticipation. But what you see here is a complete reversal It's the Gentiles who are giving uh, worship to this God and it's inciting jealousy from the Jews and the Jews are the ones that are coming and bowing before the Gentiles to give worship to the Gentile God. That is what he's saying is going to happen and it's a reversal of what was understood in the Old Testament as a prophecy that the Jews were God's people and the Gentiles were gonna come and worship and now Jesus is kind of further revealing it and saying, no, it's always been God's people and God's um, people that aren't part of God's people coming and worshiping because of the witness of God's people. In the Old Testament, it was understood to be Jewish nation and Gentiles coming. But in the New Testament, it's a, it's a reversal here because the church was made up primarily of Gentile people. And now God's saying the Jews are gonna have to come this way to worship the Messiah. Real growth is promised to this church New Christians are going to be added as worshipers to this church at Philadelphia. The word bow down, it's the same word for worship. It's the same word for worship. So they're not coming and bowing down in in humility to this church. They're coming to worship the same God of the church at Philadelphia. In uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. Sorry, verse 24. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secret of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is talking about the conversion of people um, within the church. And that's what Jesus is describing to this church at Philadelphia. He says, you've been oppressed by the synagogue of Satan, and what I'm telling you is that because of your faithfulness to the word, because of your, uh, your unwillingness to deny my name, I'm gonna open up a door of opportunity for you. And it's going to involve the Jews that have been oppressing you coming and acknowledging me as their God and bowing down in worship in response to your witness and in response to your ministry. What a, what a great promise to this church that they're not gonna grow simply by adding Christians from other churches. He says, you're gonna grow because people that are previously a part of the synagogue of Satan, an oppressor of the church, they're gonna be converted because of your ministry and come and worship me. It's essentially Romans 10 and 11 being played out. If you've ever studied Romans 10 and 11 and we've done that here as a church, 
Jesus talks about the fact that the Gentiles in this day and age serve a purpose to incite jealousy within the Jewish nation to come back to Jesus, right? In that whole scheme of being grafted into God's people, God wants to use the Gentiles, especially as we get closer to the end of the age, to bring Jews to him. And that's exactly what he's talking about here to the church at Philadelphia. He says, you're going to be a part of the Jews coming to me in a spiritual sense. He says they're going to be revealed as the true people of God, the church. He says they will know that I love you. The Jews are going to come to a correct understanding of the church according to Jesus in his discussions with the church at Philadelphia. So there's a faithful church receiving increased opportunity. A faithful church receives Christ's protective presence. He goes on, he says, because of your great works, Because of your faithfulness, not only am I going to give you increased opportunity for evangelism, he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, I'm going to protect you. Those keeping the word will now be kept by God. He says, I'm going to keep you safe through this trial. The idea here is divine protection. And I think it's more spiritual than physical, and I want to explain to you why. First of all, Uh, some things that we can see real quick about this coming trial. First of all, is that God's in control of it completely. How do we know that? Well, one, he talks about controlling the length of it, right? This hour of trial that's coming. He controls the length of it. He controls the target of it. Who's the trial for? It says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Why is it coming? To try those who dwell on the earth. All right, He uh, he wants to control the length of it. He wants to control the target of it. And he's going to restrain the trial by protecting his people in the midst of it. Well, who are the people on the earth? Um, This phrase, people that dwell on the earth, it's used throughout the book of Revelation and it always means God's enemies. So it's not speaking specifically to everybody that's on the earth. It's calling them earth dwellers and it identifies them as the enemies of God. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, Revelation 8, 13 Um, are just two of the passages that talk about this in Revelation as these people being God's enemies. What Jesus says is that these people will be kept, this church will be kept during this time of trial. And God's normal pattern for keeping his people is to keep them safe versus removing them, okay? Uh, Rapture people love to take this passage and say, this is where we, we believe that the church is taken away from the tribulation, that God's going to keep them from it. He's not going to allow it to affect them. But if you study the Bible, you find that God, his normal pattern is to protect his people in the midst of things happening versus taking them out. Some examples, think about Israel and Egypt, right? Israel and Egypt is guarded and protected from the plagues that are happening around them, right? They're not removed to a different part of the world, during the times of the plagues. They're actually in the midst of that area, but their, their animals or their, their bodies, they're protected from the plagues, right? Um, Isaiah 43.2 is one passage that would talk about um, God's provision or protection from uh, things that are happening. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 20. And I've got, I've got a lot of verses here, and we're gonna have to pick and choose which ones to read so we don't lose time here. But Mark chapter 13, verse 20. says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, talking about the tribulation, uh, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Talking about believers being present during the midst of that trial. 
Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Acts chapter 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God preserves Paul in the midst of this hostile city that was ready to kill him for his preaching. He's able to stay a year and six months and God promises that he will not be harmed even though there's hostility around him. In uh, Revelation chapter nine, verse four, It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. It's talking about when God's judgment's being poured out on the earth, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, talking about there being believers in the midst of unbelievers and who the trial is actually for. Believers are thus protected from the negative side effects of this testing. Probably the greatest support for why I believe this does not talk about us being taken away from the earth and preserved from this trial in heaven like the rapture would teach, is John chapter 17, verse 15. In Jesus' high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, um, John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus is praying for the future church, praying for his disciples, and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Right? Jesus says, hey, don't take, I'm not calling for you to take the disciples away. I'm calling for you to protect them in the midst of this world. Keep them from this world, even though they're going to remain here on this earth. Okay, so yes, he's going to protect this church. Yes, he's going to keep them from this hour of trial. But if we're going off of what Jesus prayed for his disciples, he was essentially praying that God would protect them in the midst of the trial. Probably the... Um, the greatest weakness for thinking that this is in reference to the rapture is think about the church of Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia is the one that gets this promise, right? We're gonna be kept from the hour of trial. <clears throat> if it's talking about the rapture, everybody in the church that got that promise is dead right now and the rapture hasn't happened yet if it's gonna happen, right? So it would be hard to believe that Jesus makes a promise to this church that when the hour of trial comes, they will be protected from it and taken away and raptured when they're, they're all dead now. Right? This, this had real meaning for them when they read this, real meaning for them that whatever trial was probably coming upon their church, they were going to be kept from it by being preserved in the midst of it. And Jesus promises them and says, look, you've been faithful to the word. You've been faithful to my name. I'm going to be faithful to you when this trial comes. He tells them to hold fast through the trial, though. Right? He says, I'm going to keep you safe from it, but he also tells them to hold fast. And so it's that dual aspect of Jesus provides the power, Jesus does the work in us, but we're also called as Christians to pursue sanctification to make sure that we persevere to the end. It's not completely left uh, to God in the sense that we don't have responsibility. Jesus calls this church to continued responsibility in their sanctification. He says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. I'm coming soon. But until then, you hold fast to what you have so that no one can take your crown. A faithful church receives greater opportunity, increased opportunity for its witness. A faithful church receives Christ's protective presence when trials come. And then number three, a faithful church receives secure promises. Jesus goes on to encourage this church. He does so with promises of victory and security. 
Both those promises are meant to encourage their perseverance. He says, one, that he's coming soon. A coming Jesus is certainly a great promise for this church because while other churches were threatened when Jesus' presence, hey, if you don't fix things, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna come and bring judgment. This coming is a good thing for this church. This is something they look forward to and can hope in. Um, It's not a threat, but a reward. They're also promised the aspect of being pillars in the temple. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So says there'll be pillars in the temple. Again, the idea here is that they will enjoy permanency by being built into the structure of God's sanctuary. They will never have to go out again. They will never be threatened by an earthquake. Here's what's neat is that in the heathen temples, those who served the state or the government well would oftentimes have their names written upon the pillars in those heathen temples. Jesus' promise to this church, again, in the context that they would have understood what it means to have your name written on a pillar, Jesus says you get to be the pillar, right? Not just your name written on the pillar, you get to be a pillar in my temple. It's a better promise. It's also not a promise of a real temple, Right? There's a lot of discussion, especially in the, the pre-trib, pre-millennial movement, that we're, we're anxiously awaiting for the Jews to rebuild the temple, and that that will initiate a lot of the end-time uh, events. But what we certainly should be looking forward to is a day where there is no temple, right? We don't look forward to a day when the temple is rebuilt as Christians. In fact, we look forward to a day that Revelation 21-22 tells us is a day when there is no temple, right? Revelation 21 Verse 22, and this helps us to understand that when he talks about us being pillars in the temple, that it's a spiritual type temple because in verse 22 it says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, right? We're the body of Christ and Jesus talks about us being built into the temple. And so there's a spiritual aspect that we're to understand this temple in. And Jesus says, you get to be pillars in this temple for conquering, for persevering. He also talks about the name of God being written upon this church. It references Revelation 14, 1 and Revelation 22, 4. Remember we talked about Jesus and the mark of God being engraved on these people's foreheads. Revelation talks a lot about the mark of the beast, but it talks even more about the fact that as Christians, we get the mark of God upon us. Probably not a physical mark, but it simply designates ownership. This church is owned by the one who holds all the keys. Also talks about the name of the city being upon them, communicates citizenship to this church. Several things that he references here referenced in Revelation 21. We've talked about the the fact that it correlates oftentimes in these letters, the promises relating to the end of Revelation, right? Here's a church who has been faithful. It's a small church, right? It's a church that doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a lot of people, but they've been faithful in the little things that God has given to them. And God says, because of your faithfulness, I'm gonna open up some more doors for you to increase your influence, right? He says, I'm gonna open up doors, evangelistic doors, specifically tied to the Jewish people that have been instigating things with you. And I'm gonna work it in such a way that this opportunity, this door is gonna result in their conversion, right? The kingdom's going to increase, and it's going to be a kingdom of Jews and Gentiles, and your witness is going to go forth to these Jews, and they're going to be added to the kingdom. 
And when trials come upon you and hardships come upon you, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna keep you from it. I'm gonna protect you from it. And then he gives them this this long-term picture. Hey, look forward to the day when earthquakes don't exist anymore and you're a pillar in the temple and there's stability and there's permanency in my kingdom. Because if you conquer, if you hang on to the crown, if you don't let someone else seize it from you, if you persevere to the end, you're gonna have the name of God emblazed upon you. You're gonna have the city of God that you dwell in. You're gonna have a new name and you're you're gonna conquer to the end with Christ. The application, and then, like I said, I, I, want us to, I want it to lead into a, a point of discussion for this morning. Application, are there any new opportunities that I need Christ to open for me? Are there any new opportunities that I need Christ to open for me? For you as an individual, we're talking about a God who opens and closes doors and has the power and ability to do so. So you may be a point in your life where you need God to do something, that you're in a desperate point in your life and you need a new opportunity. You need an open door in your life. And we've prayed for some of those here at this church. We've prayed when people have needed new jobs. We've prayed when people have needed new homes. And we've seen God open doors of opportunity. And we've always tried to preface it, even when praying for people to get new homes, God give them a place of ministry with that new home, right? Not just give them all their wants and desires to live in the type of house that they love. Give them a home that is placed in a position of ministry opportunity, right? So so we've prayed for these type of things and we certainly are praying to the right person right? Because Christ is the one who holds the keys to open and close doors. Secondly, are there any new opportunities that Christ is giving me that I should consider? Are there any new opportunities that have come about in your life recently that that deserve the prayer and attention because God may be opening a door for you? So you're not necessarily praying for new opportunities. The new opportunities are there. They're present for you right now. And are you working through whether to consider those and what to do with those new opportunities? God, we thank you for this church at Philadelphia, this church that was small and maybe lacked power of influence, but was a church that realized that even in their weaknesses, they could be a faithful church, which means obeying your word and holding fast to your name. And we thank you for this church and the example that they were to do that for us. And God, I pray that we would be that type of church. We're certainly a church that's small, We're certainly a church that maybe lacks big community influence. But God, we want to be a church that's faithful, faithful with little things in hopes that you'll continue to increase opportunities for influence for us for your kingdom purposes. God, we thank you that you promised to protect us in the midst of trials. Even though you may not remove us completely from those situations, we are thankful that we are guarded and protected by by you who loves us as your people. Even when people are oppressing us, God, we are thankful that you love us and that through our witness, people can be converted to you and come and worship you. And God, we're certainly thankful for the long-term promises, the secure promises that we have in the future. We look forward to and long for the days of stability where we're in your kingdom with you. Your name written upon us, your city being our new home. We look forward to and long for that day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.